Today's scripture reading will be Isaiah 1, the entire verse. Uh, may we please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have, have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkeys its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden in iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, for they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the feet even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give, the, give to the ear teaching of our God. You people of Gomorrah, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has, re who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no, no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts and my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing to be willing and obedient, 
you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, and your best wine mixed with water. Your princesses are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bride and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself and my foes. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt and smelt away your dross and with lie and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges at, at the first, as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness and the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and in those her who repent by righteousness, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They shall be ashamed of the oaks that they desire, and you shall brush be you shall blush for the gardens, and you shall be chosen for you shall be like an oak whose leaves withers and like a green garden without water like a garden without water and the strong shall become tender and he work a spark and both of them shall burn together and none none to quench them thank you May God bless, add a blessing to the hearers and doers of his word. Thank you, Chuck. Kind of find ourselves with the scripture reading and where we're starting today, we kind of find ourselves on opposite ends of where the people of Israel have been. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It's the beginning of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Page 1. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God, I pray that your word does not, I thank you that your word does not return void. That when it goes out to its hearers, 
It always returns, having done its work. Lord, I pray now as we dive into this new study, where we have a lot of information to cover today, but I pray that you would give us ears to hear, to learn, and give us eyes to see what your word is doing, how to understand your scripture well. Pray us all in your name. Amen. Have you ever had someone that thought that they knew you, but if, as you listened to them or as you thought or talked to them, you thought, you don't really know me, right? We've, had, we've all had those interactions. Maybe you thought that you've known someone and you find out that you didn't really know them. Now, if you want to understand a person, you want to get to know them, right? You want to know where they come from. You want to know what drives them. You want to know how that person communicates. So then you can get to know that person better. Many of us will take personality tests or something like that to help us understand things about ourselves and those close to us. Similarly, when you read a book, you want to know about the person who wrote the book. Often the book the book can teach you about the person, but sometimes getting to know the person can help you understand the book. For example, I'll give you two, two examples from, from my research fields. Uh, if you don't know, I, I've studied church history um, at an academic level. Um, there's a, one book on a, there's a group called the Anabaptists, or uh, Radical Reformers are sometimes called. There's an author named George Hunston Williams who wrote a massive I think it's around 2,000-page book on this particular group, these radical reformers. George Hunston Williams, in his book, he, he, he does a pretty good job throughout the book declaring, you know, talking about their history, what they're doing, who they are, who these people are, and, and tries to be really objective. And in fact, that's what he seems to believe he is doing. However, when he gets to a certain group that he still includes in this Radical Reformation group, this group that he calls the Rationalist Anabaptists, the Rationalist Radical Reformers, this is a group that generally was around, it was in Italy. This group rejected the Trinity. This group believed that the Trinity was a bunch of made-up nonsense, that God was not Trinity and, that, and, all, and that all sorts of those kind of things. Well, George Hunston Williams, when he describes this particular group, he's very positive about them. These guys are great. They're just studying their Bibles, and they're using logic. Aren't these guys awesome? And you kind of get a little bit shocked by this if you're reading this historical work. And then you find out that George Hunston Williams by religion, is a Unitarian. So in his own personal religious beliefs, he does not believe that God is Trinity. So it makes sense then that the people in history who didn't believe in the Trinity, that these guys end up being the good guys in his story, in the way he tells the story. Another good example from the church historical field is a guy named Bart Ehrman. Many of you may have seen him if you, watch, if you watch documentaries about the Bible on the History Channel or something like that. You may have ran across him. If you've looked in the religion section in, in Barnes & Noble or some other uh, popular level bookstore, not necessarily a Christian bookstore, most, you'll, see, you'll find several books about Christianity by this man named Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a skeptic when it comes to Christianity. One of his books, for example, is a book called How Jesus Became God. 
he rejects the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, it's interesting, but how, how, you know, maybe knowing some things about Bar Ehrman might help us see where he's coming from. If you were to learn about Bar Ehrman, you would find out that he's a New Testament professor at, at uh, UNC North Carolina, or at least he was last time I checked, but he is an agnostic, which means he's not even sure if God exists. This man who is not sure whether or not God exists has devoted his life to studying the New Testament and to studying Christian history. And then when he writes about it, he's obviously going to come at it from a skeptical perspective. But many people will pick up his book and say, this is a book about Bible stuff, and read it and think, oh, this guy's giving me all this insight into this stuff. But we don't stop to think what perspective he's taking. He takes a very negative perspective when it comes to the revelation of Scripture. Knowing about the author helps us understand the message he is trying to proclaim. Scripture is a little bit different, but still the principles remain the same. If we want to really know the Scriptures, we need to know something about its background. What is its purpose? Who are the author or the authors? Why was it written? How does this particular book communicate? And answering some of these questions will help us to better understand Scripture. Just like if you were to sit down and have me cook for you on my grill, you'd know a little bit more about me. Right? Because most of the time, that's how you get to know people, right? It's got to be by food. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's why we're Baptists. Hallelujah. And so you get to know people by eating. But you would get, if, you were to, if you were to stop and get to know me, or if someone was to stop and get to know you, you find, that, you find out more things about them, and you find out what makes them tick. The same thing when it comes to Scripture. Answering these kind of questions will help us better understand the text when we read it. And for Scripture, many, many of these answers can be found in the text. We just have to be careful readers. This morning, we begin a new series Beginning where the Bible begins, in the beginning. We will study through the first book of the Bible known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Yes, you heard me right, the first book of the Bible known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Now the word Pentateuch, it means five-part book or five-fold book. One book in five parts. The word Pentateuch is a, is a late reference to this book here that we are about to begin studying. But in other, in other places in Scripture, this book is often called the Law or the Torah. This refers to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We see it in our English Bibles now as five different books. But really, it is one book written by one guy named Moses. It is one book. It is a five-part book. In, Ma in Mark chapter 12 and verse 26, Jesus refers to this book as the law, singular, the book, singular, of Moses, referring to this entire section of Scripture. So in one sense, then, we've, we've come to the conclusion that really, Genesis through Deuteronomy is the longest book of the Bible, right? Because it's, it's, it's a pretty big chunk. Genesis to Deuteronomy is a very large chunk. The word Torah means law or teaching. Now, oftentimes, we'll, we'll come back to this in just a second 
in, in, in a little bit later. But the word Torah, often when we think of the Torah or when we think of the word law, we think of the laws that are in this book, right? The rules and the regulations that were given to the people of Israel. However, as we will find, this word Torah, the law or the teaching, is, is, is not just those laws. It is the entire book itself. It is a book, a law book that contains laws. It is a teaching book that contains laws, but it is all total called the Torah or the law or the teaching. And again, we will jump back to this in just a bit when we jump into Genesis 1. Let's start for a second and talk about authorship. Like I said, the Bible is a little bit unique when we come to the idea of authorship. There is two elements of authorship when we come to Scripture. There is a divine author and there is a human author. That does not mean that there's some kind of schizophrenic idea where God inspired some parts of it and the human author may not have understood that and so he's got a different message and that these two messages are conflicting. That's not what we're talking about at all. In fact, what Scripture tells us is that God inspired the Scripture to be written by these men. Now, that also does not mean that that this was some kind of dictation, as if you were taking notes and they're like, okay, God, start talking. All right, you said this. Okay, good, good, good. It wasn't exactly like that either. It wasn't a verbal dictation. Well, we, would, we would call this, in theology, we would call this a, what was going on, a verbal plenary view of the inspiration. In other words, the words are inspired. The text is inspired, and the human author shows evidence of their human authorship. You, you'll find different books of the Bible. You'll see different personalities in the way things are written. And if you were getting into languages, you would really see this. For example, in the New Testament, Paul st- tends to write in really, really long sentences with lots and lots of really complicated language. Whereas John, very short, punchy sentences. Very short to the point, punchy uh, so there's very different personalities in the way that they write. Same divine author. God working through these men, using their particular skills, their particular personalities, to inspire the scripture to be written. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And 2 Peter 1.21 says that God spoke in times past through the prophets. That God is the one speaking. When we are reading scripture, this is not just the words of Moses. This is the very words of God. And as a divine author. But we also know there's also a human author. Somebody had to write it. This, the, the Torah did not float down from the sky. And was, it wasn't received that way. Somebody wrote it. Now, the Pentateuch never says who wrote it. You'll never find a place in the Pentateuch where it says, and I, Moses, said this. Like you do in, for example, in, in the New Testament with some of Paul's letters. It says, I, Paul, write to you here, near, and here. And it goes on like that and declares who he's writing. You don't have that in the Pentateuch. Um, but you do have in Mark chapter 12 and 26, he refers to, uh, Jesus refers to the Pentateuch as the book of Moses. So Jesus believed that this was written by Moses. And I suppose that would be enough. Right? Jesus, the Son of God, said Moses is the guy who wrote this. I think we should accept that. 
Further, in John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, speaking to, the, to uh, some of the people of Israel, some of the religious teachers, says to them, um, they're, they're, they're tell, asking him who he is and who does he think he is. He says, how do you not know who I am? You've read Moses. How do you not know who I am? This passage will come up again as we walk through here in this introduction. But Jesus is, is clear that he knows, that he believes that the human author is indeed Moses who wrote this. Then we might ask the question, well, who was this written to? Right? Another aspect of introduction is who is the original audience? Who is the audience? And knowing who the audience is can help us understand the perspective of the author, help us understand what they were trying to do. Now, the immediate audience is freed Israel, right? Genesis was not written to Adam and Eve, right? It was written a long time after that. It was written by Moses many, 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 many years after that to a people who had just been freed from Egypt and were walking and were on their way to the promised land. That's who this is written to. So as we look through the narratives, as we look through the, 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 what's being told to us in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that needs to be understood that this particular community of people is one of the audiences. In, in, uh, for, we, we may think of it in this way, the Pentateuch, we may think of the Pentateuch in this way in Exodus. Moses asked God, remember the burning bush, God, or Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? Right? And how does God respond? Tell them, I am sent you. Now that's the short answer. We may then see the Pentateuch as the long answer to that very question. Who shall I say sent me? This book is explaining who sent me. As we will see, this book is not only written to a particular, particular isolated group of people, but also to a future community, even to us. There's not, it's not limited to just the people who are freed from Israel. In fact, Moses even has a future idea. We'll see that as we unpack the purpose of the book. But there is an idea that, we're, that there are people in the future who are going to read this book, and this is a message for them as well. So this is not, uh, Moses was clear and was very understanding that this message was not just to this isolated group of people. So now let's look at the purpose of the book. What is the purpose of Genesis to Deuteronomy? Why is it there? What's it doing? What is Moses trying to do? In order to relate all the events of, of history, one of, one of the purposes is that he wants to relate all of the events of history, of Israel's history, and in, in fact the history of the entire world, to the Sinai covenant and to the future. Now, again, think about so the, after the people are freed from Israel, as we'll get to in Exodus, they go to a mountain called Mount Sinai where God gives the people of Israel a covenant. All right? And so what what. Moses is trying to do is saying, look how all the history of the world all relates to this covenant that we're about to have, that we have with the Lord. He showed how the covenant with Abraham, the covenant that God made with Abraham uh, in Genesis, relates to the covenant made at Mount Sinai. One scholar writes this way. He says, thus the people uh, for whom Moses wrote the Pentateuch needed to know more fully what was about to happen to them. They needed to know who they were. And the great purpose God had for them in this covenant. 
Moses wanted Israel to know what, that what was happening to them was not simply a liberation from a particularly bad period of enslavement. Rather, God was beginning a work in their lives. And they were now begin, becoming a major part of his program to redeem the world to himself. They were being called into fellowship with a God who wanted nothing short of their perfect obedience and trust. Moses also warned the people, he continues, of the danger of unbelief and the failure to trust God. Many of the Pentateuchal narratives, that's the the narratives that are in the Pentateuch, seem directed to just this end. The lives of characters such as Adam, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob and we could go on, are often used as examples of a failure to trust God and of the consequences of such failure. So when we read Abraham, we're not just focused on Abraham. We're also saying, what is Abraham teaching the people of Israel at Mount Sinai? What is he teaching them? What is Moses, why does Moses point out these particular things about Abraham and not other things about Abraham? because he is trying to show these different aspects. Some of that may, may, may be where Abraham did not believe God or failed to trust God and shows those consequences. Moses' view of God was also important to his writing task. Moses was very interested in letting Israel know that the God who redeemed them from bondage was not just their God, but was also the God who created all things, who was God of the entire universe and over all people. This is the purpose of the early chapters of Genesis. There would be a great temptation for the people of Israel because they had come to know God in such a personal way. I think about this. They were led by a pillar of fire and by a pillar of cloud. They had very close, direct connection in their relationship with God. There would be theological pressure then that if left unchecked would erode a proper view of God. The pressure was the tendency to localize and nationalize God as the God of Israel alone, just as the other nations had done with their gods. A God who exists solely for Israel and for their blessing. Genesis 1 then, Moses' purpose in Genesis 1 then, faces this temptation head on. Introducing God as the one who created the universe and who has created all of humanity. And wants to be in a relationship with them and has blessing prepared for all people. Genesis 1 then also lays a theological foundation for every missionary statement in the Bible. You want to learn about missions? Genesis 1 is a starting place. Moses wants his readers to know that the creator God has entered into a covenant promise with his people Israel. Biblical Israel was not an ordinary people. And Israel's history was not an ordinary history. The history recounted is a history of God's redemption of his people and through them the redemption of the world. Now in the second half of the Pentateuch, in the later parts of it, it becomes clear that Moses was not only concerned with that current generation, but was focused on the future, the next generation as well. His future readers were also a primary concern for Moses. So what is he telling his, his readers about the covenant at Sinai? What does Moses want them to know? Uh, one scholar named John Salehammer explains three purposes. One, he wants to link God's original plan of blessing humanity 
with his establishment of the covenant with Israel at Sinai. Put simply then, the author sees the covenant at Sinai as God's plan to restore his blessing to humanity through the descendants of Abraham. So these stories become connected. What we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God brings a blessing to Abraham, is, is exactly what God is doing in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, when he begins to uh, rescue the people of Israel from bondage. He is seeking to restore his blessing through the descendants of Abraham. Secondly, the author wants to show that the covenant at Sinai failed to restore God's blessing to humanity because Israel failed to trust God and obey his will. This is exactly what we're seeing in Isaiah. They were given this covenant, this very personal relationship with the Lord, and they failed to obey that covenant. And that's why the Sinai covenant ultimately failed. But three, the author also wants to show that God's promise to restore the blessing would ultimately succeed. Because God himself would one day give to his people a heart to trust and obey him. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 30. One day God would ultimately fulfill his promise. The Pentateuch then is ultimately about the future, not the past. It's about how God will restore the blessing to all humanity. He will bring all nations to himself. The Pentateuch is about the covenant. It is not the document of the covenant. It is about the covenant. So the covenant itself is contained in the Pentateuch, but that is not the covenant. Genesis through Deuteronomy is not the same thing as the covenant. Rather, the Pentateuch, what Moses is doing is he is taking an examination of this covenant at Sinai. The Pentateuch looks at the Sinai covenant as an object under consideration. Though it contains the documents of the covenant, it is seeking to evaluate the covenant rather than to simply relay it to the people. So when we come to the Pentateuch, we need to understand that aspect, that this is not the thing itself. It contains it, but really what what Moses is doing is he is examining it and looking at it and helping us better understand that covenant. Next, we want to think about the events. When it comes to the Pentateuch, when it comes to any kind of narrative, really, we need to understand the difference between texts and events. When we read the Pentateuch, what we should not be doing is is saying, okay, well, here's a description of the stuff that happened. Now, what actually happened? What's going on behind the text? Or or, or how can I better understand the world that Abraham was living in by reading Genesis? That's not the point. If we do that, what we are doing is we are saying, we are stripping away what Moses is trying to do in the text. Moses is giving the text, he he is describing these events with a purpose. These are true events and he is describing them accurately, but we should not use this text as a way to try to see events behind the text. Rather, we use the text as itself to tell us about the text. We call this the world of the text. What what matters when it comes to biblical interpretation is the world of the text, not the events that are behind the text, right? So if I want to know what does, what was... Abraham thinking when he was about to, uh, about to uh, uh, um, sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 21. Well, 
We don't know. We could speculate, but how does that help us with interpretation? When it comes to interpretation, on the other hand, what we do know is that in the beginning of Genesis chapter 21, the scripture says, the text says that God tested Abraham. The reader then has a privileged position on the text. We already know that Abraham's not going to go through with it. This is a test for Abraham. God isn't wondering, oh, is he going to do it or not? Is he going to sacrifice his son? He's not biting his nails, wondering what's going to happen. Right? Whether or not Abraham was, was having inside turmoil is irrelevant to the interpretation of the text. Makes for good preaching, but maybe is, but is irrelevant to the actual interpretation of the text. The text has already told us that he's not going to do it. God tested Abraham in this way. Now, there is a tension that as you read it, you're, you may be thinking, is he going to do it or is he not going to do it? But then you get to the end of the story and you find out he didn't do it. Right? So the tension does not last long for the reader. So we need to understand the text is what matters, not the events for interpretation at least. Then we, talk about, we can talk about the structure. Again, we're trying to get to know it better. The structure of the, of, of the Pentateuch. Many different angles. There's many different angles we can approach this question. For example, one, um, the Pentateuch essentially is a dual biography. There's two main biographies going on here. There's a biography about Abraham and his family, and there's a biography about Moses. Now think of the difference of these two things. You have Abraham is described as a man who is righteous, who God declares righteous by faith. He doesn't have the law, excuse me, he doesn't have the law, he doesn't have those rules and regulations, yet he still is declared righteous because of his faith. Moses, on the other hand, has the laws, but the laws cannot save him. In fact, Moses ends up having to die outside of the promised land. He's not able to go into the promised land. Abraham was, but Moses was not. The law could not save Abraham. This is what I'm talking about, how the Pentateuch is actually an examination of the covenant. Moses is pointing out very clearly, these laws cannot save you. These laws were never meant to save you. Have faith in God as Abraham did. That's what's going to save you. Faith and obedience is what's going to save you, not rules and regulations. Another one we can talk about is kind of this structural scheme. And if you want to skip around in your Bible, uh, we don't, we don't, I don't have time to really dwell on this too much, but if you want to skip around in your Bible and, and kind of look through this as, as we walk through this, there's a, a structural scheme that, that Moses gives us through this text that helps us, helps drive the narrative forward. It's, we could, it's, it's, Basically, he gives a section of narrative, followed by a poem, followed by an epilogue, which is essentially a summary of what just happened. He does this throughout in the early chapters of, uh, of Genesis. Moses prepares the reader to look for this structure. There's the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, followed by a poetic discourse where Adam says something as a poem in chapter 2 and verse 3. And then there is an epilogue that follows that in chapter 2, verse 24. Then the account of the fall in chapter 3 does something similar. There's, there, there, uh, in chapter, chapter 3 narrates the events, concludes the poetic discourse in verses 14 through 19. And then an epilogue follows in chapter 3, verses 20 and 24. In fact, if you have, if you have your Bible in front of you, so, uh, in, oftentimes in, uh, the editors of the scripture will, will put... Uh, will, will, 
do different things with indentation to show you that something is a poem rather than a, rather than a narrative. The narrative, if you, if you have a paragraph form Bible specifically, you'll see that the narrative is usually more in blocks. And then you have poetry that's kind of sandwiched in and kind of, kind of pushed in to the middle of the text. That's how you can see these differences, what's going on here. You can, you can see it very clearly in that way. Also in the account of Cain in chapter 4, there's a, there's a poetic discourse in chapter 4, verse 23, and an epilogue in 4, 24 through 26. This pattern occurs throughout the Pentateuch as the narrative sections get larger. For example, at the end of the narrative about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, chapters 12 through 48, that's a big section of narrative. And all the way at the end of this big section of narrative, there's a large poem, the entire chapter 49 is one big poem. And then there's an epilogue in chapter 50 of the book of Genesis. We find similar poetic sections in Exodus 15, Numbers 23 and 24, Deuteronomy 31 through 33. If we compare for a little bit, so what is this telling us? How does this help us, right? We want to know, what does is, what is knowing this structure help us with? Let me explain this real quick. In, if we compare Genesis 49, Numbers 24, and Deuteronomy 31, we actually see a pattern that emerges that draws these poetic sections together. Each of these sections in Genesis 49, Numbers 24, and, and Deuteronomy 31 focuses on a central figure. Jacob, Balaam, and Moses. These people call an audience together. Jacob calls his family together, his sons with him. In Genesis 49.1, Numbers 24.14, Balaam does something similar. And in Deuteronomy 31, verse 28, Moses calls the people of Israel together. There's a calling for an audience. And then there's a proclamation of what will happen at the end of days. What, what in, in Genesis 49, Numbers 24, and Deuteronomy 13, all three of those passages end up having a future focus. So these poetic sections continually remind us that we're looking to the future, not the past. Though this is a history, it is a history that points us to the future, not to the past. We'll see more examples of this. We'll slow down and we'll go back over this as we go throughout this study. We'll see how these things come about. But we need to understand that the Pentateuch is not just some collection of stories. Children's Bibles do a, a great deal of damage when they treat these stories as disconnected uh, uh, fairy tales almost. This is not a collection of stories, but a finely tuned narrative which reveals God's plan to redeem his people. This is not just a historical redemption as something that happened in the past or, or what happened in Egypt uh, thousands of years ago, but it's a story of redemption that would ultimately come th true through Jesus Christ. As Jesus told the religious leaders in John chapter 5, you've read Moses, how do you not know about me? So, if this is all about Christ, how far do we need to go? To find Jesus. How far do we need to, to go to find out what Christ, find Christ proclaimed? I would propose no further than verse 1. No further than the first verse. Let's turn our attention then to Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. The introduction of the creation account, and then the introduction of the entire Pentateuch. You may have heard some people say, that the Trinity is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. If Jesus is right, that cannot be possible. 
If he says, if you read Moses, you should know about me, it's impossible that the Trinity would be concealed in the Old Testament. In fact, I would argue that Moses declares the Trinity to us in the very beginning of his book. As we said before, Torah means law or instruction. Torah means law or instruction. So we might ask the question, instruction about what? What's it going to instruct us about? What does it want to tell us? Well, let's ask the question. We'll keep that question in mind and let's look at what Genesis 1 is telling us. The very first word of the Hebrew Bible is the, the Hebrew word berashit. Berashit, it's made up of two parts. There's a preposition. Hebrew, in Hebrew, the preposition gets sandwiched together with its noun. It's the bait preposition, the first letter, the B, that would be in the word berashit. Um, it's, that's the preposition. It, can, it has a variety of meanings, just as if you've ever studied languages. You know that languages often have a, it's not always a one-to-one correlation with language. Um, the bait preposition, especially with prepositions, the word, pre, the, word the, the bait preposition that is translated in your Bible is the word in, can also mean with, by means of, by, all sorts of other varieties of meanings that it could have. So let's keep that in mind. Let's move forward into the next part of the word, the word rashit. This is the Hebrew word, which sometimes means beginning, as it is translated there in your Bible. But most of the time, throughout the Hebrew Bible, most of the time it is translated as the word first fruits. In fact, the translation as the word beginning happens only a couple of times, whereas the majority of times it is translated at is the word first fruits. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 3, in Deuteronomy 21 verse 17, Psalm 105 36, and Psalm 78 verse 51, this word first fruits is, it ha- there's a structure that's something similar to the fact of, you are the first fruits of my loins, the, the firstborn of my, of my children, or something to that effect. So there is a synonymous relationship between first fruits and firstborn, right? You are the first fruits of my loins, the firstborn of my children, as Jacob tells Reuben in Genesis 49, verse 3. He says, you are the first fruits, the firstborn. There's a synonymous relationship where the word first fruits can mean the same thing as the Hebrew word for firstborn. In Genesis 49, verse 3, it is a specific reference to a specific member of a family. So it's not just any first fruits, not just any beginning, but a specific beginning. The beginning. The firstborn son. I would propose that a, a, a theologically sound way to understand and read Genesis 1-1 is by means of the firstborn son, God created the heaven and the earth. We'll come back to that in just a second. Let's see how the rest of the Bible understands creation. In Psalm chapter 33 and verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord were all things created. In, Psalm, in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 22, wisdom, God says, By wisdom were all things created. There is a sense of agency by which God creates something, which, remember, the bait preposition can mean by or by means of. There's an idea of agency that's in that word. And this is how Psalm 33 and Proverbs 8 both seem to read this text, that there is some kind of agency involved. 
Now, Psalm 33, we might say, well, yeah, God spoke the, word into spoke the world into existence, so we would expect that the word of the Lord would be what creates. John, however, seems to take a different perspective to this. In John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul does the same thing where he says, by him all things consist. Who is this him? It's the one who is wisdom. It's the one who is the word that's spoken about in Psalm 33. It is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The one through whom God created the heaven and the earth. I don't think they're just coming out of this out of thin air as if, as if John had brand new revelation. No, I believe what John is doing is he is reading Genesis 1-1 through the lenses of Proverbs 8-22 and Psalm 33-6. He's saying, Christ is wisdom. Wisdom created the world. Psalm 33 says that wisdom is the word. So therefore, the one who is the beginning is Christ. An early Christian scholar named Origen, 3rd century if you're wondering, that's, that's 250-ish is when Origen was alive. He said, when we come to this passage, we ought not be looking for when the beginning was, but rather looking for who the beginning was. And Revelation tells us the answer to that question. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Who is the beginning of Genesis chapter 1? It's Christ. Who is the one by whom God created all things? It's Christ. Who is the Torah about? What is the Torah instructing us about? Christ. What Moses wants to instruct his people about is Jesus, and he gets that off from the very first word of the text. Bereshit. By means of the firstborn son. Continuing forward, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. We'll unpack this a little bit more next week. But then notice the third character that's mentioned. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God the Father, creating by means of, the, of God the Son. And who else is there? The Holy Spirit. Now, some translations want to miss this. They take the word spirit, which is the, the Hebrew word ruach, and they try to take that and say, well, the word ruach can also mean wind. So this is just a mighty wind is blowing over the waters, and that's all this is talking about. But if we, if we go back and say, well, if he's talking about the Son and the Father and their act of creation, doesn't it make sense that this spirit that he's talking about is not mere wind, but in fact is the Holy Spirit of God Almighty? And we don't have to stop there. As a matter of fact, the rest of, of the Pentateuch gives this same idea. God does not create apart from the Holy Spirit. In Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 5, when God is uh, commanding the tabernacle to be built, he gives a man the talent, the ability to be able to do this, to fulfill God's will. And he says, I have filled you with my spirit. 
not even he, he, this guy in Exodus 31 could not do the work that God wanted him to do apart from the Holy Spirit. And God the Father did not choose to do his work apart from the Holy Spirit either. Numbers 11.29 is something similar where uh, Joshua was afraid that some people who, who may not have been called might end up trying to lead. And Moses says, man, I wish that everyone would be filled with the Spirit. Not just individual leaders, but I wish that every single one of these people could be filled with the Holy Spirit and do the will of God. Ezekiel chapter 36 continues this same idea. He says that, this is when, when Ezekiel prophesies that there is going to be a new heart given, right? The future outlook where there's going to be a new heart given. He says, it is by the Spirit of the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, that a new heart will be given, that the heart of stone will be replaced with the heart of flesh. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, makes the same claim that nothing, can, that God's will cannot be done apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So Genesis 1, 1 and 2 gives us this beautiful picture that the God of the Bible is the triune God of the Bible, that God the Father does not work apart from the Son and the Holy Spirit. He does not create this universe apart from the work of the, fa of the Son and the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, continuously from the very beginning of creation, working together. And Moses wants to make sure that that's the God that we are looking at, not any other God not some other deity, but looking at God, the triune God of the Bible from the very beginning. Let me ask you a question then. If even God the Father will not work apart from the Son and the Holy Spirit, do we have any right to try to do God's work apart from the triune God? Are we trusting Him or are we trusting in our own abilities? Oftentimes we do this. We go to work and we try to do our jobs and we never, we don't pray and trust the Lord for these things. We don't give that over to Him. We try to do it in our own abilities. And we've seen time and time again that when we try to do things on our own abilities, we fail. Let me ask you, are you trusting the Lord? You cannot do God's will apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. You can't say, well, I've been a Christian for long enough. I really don't need that prayer thing anymore. I really don't need that Bible stuff anymore. Not even a pastor is excused. Matter of fact, I'll tell you, as a pastor, I need it a whole lot more than any of you do. We must be trusting the Lord. We must be depending on Him. Last, I want to look at John chapter 5 real quickly as we're beginning to close. John chapter 5, we've mentioned this passage already. John chapter 5, verses 46 through 47. Jesus says this, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writing, how will you believe my words? There is an interconnected relationship. You cannot say that you trust the God of the Bible and then reject Jesus. You cannot do it. 
There is no idea that, well, I, I believe God, but that Jesus guy, I don't, I don't really believe in that guy. He was just some miraculous guy that did stuff. Jesus says, you can't do that. You, if you believe in me, then you believe in the God of the Bible. You believe the God that Moses is declaring. And you believe what Moses has said about me. But if you reject me, you've rejected the Father. And the same is true. If you have rejected the Father, you have rejected the Son. You cannot separate the two. So as Genesis 1, 1 and 2 declares the triune God of the Bible, we have no room in our theology to reject the Trinity. There's none. George Hunston Williams is wrong. He believes in a God that does not exist. Any religion that says they believe in the God of the Bible and rejects the idea of there being a trinity believes in a God that does not exist. We must trust the biblical revelation. Two areas of invitation then as we close. God planned a miraculous redemption for his people through a man called Jesus, a God-man called Jesus. John 1 describes that he created all things and then he took on humanity, added to his divinity humanity, and suffered and died on a cross for your sin and for mine. If you're here today and you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge you, come and find me. Afterwards, come and find some, someone else who, who, who you may know that is a Christian talk to him about that. We'd love to share with you how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus. Secondly, if you do have a relationship with Jesus, are you trying to live apart from God? Are you trying to live your life apart from the Holy Spirit's help, apart from the work of the Son of God? Are you trying to do it on your own? If you need to repent, Use this time as a time to, to get with the Lord and confess that sin and begin to depend on Him once again. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this opportunity to begin studying this book of the Bible. Lord, this five-fold book. Lord, it's so filled with wonderful truths, with theology and prophecy. And, and I'm so excited, Lord, to dive in Lord, I pray today that we will have gotten to know you better. As we've gotten to, if we, we've had the opportunity to understand how you, through Moses, wrote this text. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be diligent students of this book and of the entirety of the scriptures. Lord, I pray you would help us to uh, open our eyes to fall deeply, deeply in love with your word. How exciting to know that every page speaks your name. And Lord, every single page is a revelation of the Son of God and his salvation for us. We thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, but that you came to rescue us, that you want a relationship with us. Pray that we would respond to this invitation as you would have us to respond in your name. Amen.